we've had business models that have tried to obfuscate the customer's data. It's no different than when I go to the doctor and then I go to get a second opinion, my health information should be passed on to that other doctor. You would think. It's like having two different blood tests because one isn't sharing it with the other. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we always need to respect that data and financial data is the customer's data. Support provided by the Vital Credit Card. Make a statement in your wallet with a sleek metal credit card that pays you cash back when you share and spend responsibly while helping you improve your credit health. Request your invite at vital.fintechconfidential.com. Welcome to Fintech Confidential, bringing you the people, tech, and companies that change how you pay and get paid. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ted. Great to be here. With MX being a leader in open finance and delivering that intelligent, personalized money experiences, I found it really interesting that it's impacting and connected to over 13,000 financial institutions and thousands of fintechs and credit unions. And then the other piece that was interesting that it powers over 85% of the digital banking that's out there. So there's lots of work that's going on and it's touching over 200 million customers. With you joining MX just earlier this year, and you spent 18 years at PayPal um, and working in, from what I remember is all the omni-channel stuff that you've done. I'm really curious to understand how you ended up in FinTech. The origins of me probably have to go back to when I was really young. Uh, and I always had a thing about money. I think at some point I wanted to be a financial planner and you know, I've told the story a couple of times. My, my dad was someone that uh, sort of took me around. He sold fertilizer and he took me to see farmers and he taught about money and resourcefulness and all that good stuff. And, you know, as part of that journey, my first foray into money was as an accountant. And I would say I was a failed accountant, but at the same token, it taught me how to keep score, why money's important. At some point in that accounting journey, I did people's taxes. And I remember doing them manually. And then one year later, we got a computer that we could actually do them on behalf of our customers. And so that nexus between money and technology has always been something that I've looked at and said, there is a huge opportunity to help people through that. We talk a lot about making people financially strong. And at minimum, what we really want to do is to de-stress people around their money. We're living in a an economy right now, which is going to be even more stressful for people. We're living in a world where technology is, from my point of view, creating more stress on people because it's fragmenting the money experience. I look at fintech and I look at the space as really something that is a great calling for all everyone who works at MX to really be able to help people around some something that I think by statistics prove out, number one, causes stress for people. So... If you were to look at your entire journey over the 20 plus years, is there one thing that really sticks out that you've learned that is the core of everything that you approach things with? If I go back, there'll probably be a few things, but sort of themes that you'll hear me talk a lot about are customer centricity and really being beholden to customer outcomes. We talk about you know, adding bank accounts. So we have a product called instant account verification. Mm -hmm. I try to remind people, no one's really trying to add a bank account. They're trying to get paid. 
or they're trying to push money to someone else. And one of the things that I learned throughout my journey is really be customer empathetic, understand the experience by which they're doing things. I was always struck by some sort of case study I saw with uh, Procter and Gamble. And in that case study that they talked about, I think his name was A.G. Laffley, who I think was the CEO for many years. And he talked about how he went and did laundry in 23 different countries because the process of doing laundry had to be very customized to the actual indigenous place that you're doing it. And so it taught me if you're actually going to offer a financial service, be very indigenous. What is the customer actually really trying to do? What is their intent? And how do you remove friction in front of that? One of the things that especially my experience at PayPal taught me, the more you can be customer centric, the more you can make things easier the more people are going to want to use what you're doing. And frankly, they're often very, very apt to pay you for it. Well, and it's funny you mentioned going back to the PayPal experience as well. As I remember, it's been many years since I attended one of your sessions. And it was one of the first times that I heard um, localized payment method. You'd mentioned it that way. And, and in the rest of my history, I've been doing this 25 years now. I've always heard is alternative payment methods. Yeah. That shift that you brought and looking at as localized now no longer made it feel foreign to to me. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it speaks to you have to create localized, personalized experiences. And what's relevant to you is relevant to you. And you don't really care if 99% of the people use something else. It's what's relevant to you. With the time that you spent at PayPal, that's it's a large organization, multinational, like very large public company. What was it that drew you into the startup world with MX? Well, I really looked at my journey at, at PayPal around you know how I could innovate around money, going back to what we talked about up front. And, you know, like with any company. I was very proud of what we've done and had done and what I was part of at PayPal. And I got to a point where I felt that there was, at this point in my career, there were bigger callings for me. There are bigger callings for the industry. I really wanted to be called and I felt called to do something different, which could be more transformational than what I could do there at this point of my career and this point of PayPal's career. And this idea of open banking is something that Throughout my career, I had actually got to see up close and personal. I was over in Europe living and working GDPR. when PSD2 came out, uh, was involved with PayPal's investment into Plaid, was involved with PayPal's investment into a company called Tink. And we were probably, from a fintech point of view, I would argue probably the heaviest user of open banking in the world. And so I got to a point of saying, I think this is where the world's going towards. And then I looked at all the fragmented experiences that were being manifested from the perspective of both the, the customer as well as the financial institution or the fintech. And I really felt that this was a problem worth leaning into to solve. And when I found out about MX, it was sort of like that, you know, moment when chocolate met peanut butter or whatever, Reese's Pizza, <laughs> whatever you want, that, that sort of moment that said, ah, this actually really belongs. Uh, because it was really what I was almost craving in my professional life and it existed and this opportunity came to fruition. And as I got to understand the ethos of the company, the mission of the company, it felt really compatible to what I wanted to do and what, and to some degree, what I had been doing within PayPal. And 
I often tell people if you took the uh, mission statement of PayPal about democratizing financial services and you took the mission statement of MX about making people financially strong, you probably could put them side by side and say which one is which, and probably people wouldn't be able to tell the difference from it. That's probably a good thing because at the end of the day, both companies, at least from my career point of view, were really aligned around it. And so when I saw the company, I saw what it was doing around open finance, I saw the potential of data, and I really think this is a decade around data for us as, as we think about innovation and what it can unlock. And if for me, it was an, an amazing opportunity to think about what could be in our industry, what could be for fintechs, what could be for banks, and frankly, what could be for customers if we actually harness the potential of this. With all the talk about inflation and tightening of lending and markets just slowing the economy in general, and even though I know you don't have a crystal ball or a hot tub time machine, <laughs> tell me what you see as the opportunity for MX and the broader industry, especially as we continue to see more of these, this recessionary pressure. We fundamentally believe that we can help people with what is their number one stress, which is the money experience and money in general. And I think some of the issues that we've had because of what I call fractionalized experiences, which manifest themselves based upon emerging technology. If you look at my personal life, I used to have one bank account that I, I worked with. It. My family had one bank account. Now we probably have 16 different bank accounts. You know, 21 different financial institutions that we work with. You could keep going and because of the emergence of embedded finance, money is in so many different locations. And right now that fragmented experience is just creating a lot more stress on people in terms of, hey, I really would like to more scrutinize my financial situation. I really would like to understand where I'm actually making payments. I'd like to know where to invest. And because everything is so fractionalized, it's so hard to be able to do that. And so where we sit is really at that forefront of trying to make it easier for people to take the stress out of their finances. When you think about just simple use cases around account aggregation, which is, hey, can I get a 360 degree view of my financial information? We think that's a very powerful use case. When we think about, hey, what are the actions that I can take based upon transaction history that we have? How do I make sense of the data that I have? Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about this idea of people being, and not just people, companies and fintechs and banks being financially illiterate. People aren't stupid. They just don't have the information to make good decisions. So really, we sit on the forefront of partnering with the ecosystem to bring financial literacy to bear based upon data. So I'm a bit of a data geek at heart. All right. I look as data is being a digital gold mine and less so the bars of gold stacked up at Fort Knox. Yep. Can you tell me how you see the role of data and the future of financial services and how we can do that without the individuals losing that privacy? Ultimately, we always need to respect that data and financial data is the customer's data. And we've had business models that have tried to obfuscate that. And I think we all need to come together and realize we have what's in the best interest of the customer. And, and I've used this analogy in other forms, but it's no different than when I go to the doctor and then I go to get a second opinion 
my health information should be passed on to that other doctor. You would think. We live in a world on financial, it'd be no different than if I went and I applied for a mortgage here and I applied for a mortgage over there. It's like having two different blood tests because one isn't sharing it with the other. Mm -hmm. That may make the financial institution very happy that they're sort of closed garden information, but you're you're serving that customer in a, in a very inefficient manner and you're actually creating a friction experience for that customer. So you're 100% correct in terms of saying that data is the the mine. We have to then do something to make it actionable. And so a lot of what we think about is how do you take that data and make it something that you can do something with. And you know, use cases that we think about are you could see a world where you know things like passwords are eradicated because you can authenticate people through financial data. You could see a world where investing is automatically generated based upon your preferences, data basically looks at your current situation and then creates an invested uh, account for you and goes invest that money on your behalf. I could go on with different use cases, and I'm sure we could riff here for the next four hours on it. Most likely, and we'd yeah. love to. But at the same token, I think we just need to understand that in many ways, creating the access point for data is the platform for innovation. And when we do that, it'll be pretty amazing what we can actually accomplish. And I think there's this, this mindset that by holding on to the old paradigm, holding on to customers' data, it's in our advantage as, as a financial service provider. And in the long run, it's actually to your disadvantage. And when we're actually to open it up and innovate, people are going to be much more respectful and willing to pay for the services that come from that. So one of the things that you mentioned, and you've mentioned a couple times uh, in a number of things that I've watched, is how disjointed, how disconnected, um, how siloed the information has become in fintech. And it really makes it hard for the consumers to know how they're using their money. Help! It really makes it really hard for them to figure out how to use their money better, invest their money, grow their money, all those different things. What opportunities do you see as you as you bring that in? As you were talking about bringing that and aggregating it together, being able to authenticate, getting rid of passwords. Yeah. What kind of opportunities do you see for financial institutions? Another fintechs as we move into the decade of of data, as you called it. You can see financial institutions as identity companies as one, which again you'd never think of your bank as a fin- as an identity company. You can see just the you know the opportunity on bill payments, just the process by which I pay bills is I basically try to remember what I'm paid. I go to my spreadsheet and say, okay, I think. This is how much I'm going to pay. I just pay what I think it is and then sort of figure it out thereafter. Then there's that invariable situation that may exist in many of our houses. It's like, honey, did you pay that bill? I thought you were paying the bill. Did you pay? No, I didn't pay it. Okay. And then it's like, okay, we have to go figure out why we're behind on a payment or credit gets dinged because of it as you go through that. And it's it happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. And that's why I said, you think somebody like myself has the pedigree to know better but that's it's just the world we live in. Yeah, and I think it, it it's a good point that you bring up. It's not about not having the means, and that's a lot of times the direction people yeah. take it from. And it's really about having data just in disparate areas. One of the areas that that seems to be rife with the data discrepancy, especially for, from a consumer perspective, really is the biggest area from my perspective is the whole buy now, pay later. 
because you can have on one shopping cart 15 different buy now, pay laters. And where am I going to keep track of that? Is it going to be in my email? Or am I going to get a little bit more sophisticated, bring it into a spreadsheet? Funny you mentioned that. I, I was, I feel like I'm giving around the world with Jim for a moment. I was in Brazil. I was <laughs> once in Brazil as I go through this. And we were studying, this is maybe uh, 2012. Oh, well, so, 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 so we're down. So this, is, if you're familiar with Brazil, very heavy into installments. Mm -hmm. And if you ask any Brazilian, do they do credit? That's like a taboo. But if you ask them, do you do installments, which is buy now, pay later. Oh, absolutely. We all do that. That's smart, funny um, management. And we went to one gentleman's home and I'll never forget, you know, we were asking him, you know, how many installments do you have? And he says, oh, I have 12. So how oh do you know? God. I have 12 because everything is bought in installments. Mm -hmm. Go, how do you keep track of it? He points to his head. He pointed to oh his head. It's, like, it's all in my head. It's all in my head. And then his wife said, well, maybe it's not in your head. And she, she literally went into a drawer and pulled out a notebook, spiral notebook. Goes, it's all listed right here. And this is how we do it. And so it's no different than, you know, what, what went on 10 years ago in Brazil is the world now that we're, we're existing in. And how do you manage all these disparate, you know, payment mechanisms? And there isn't really an easy way to do it. We just talked about how Brazil had done the installments, how in the U.S. and around the yeah. globe that started to come into play. But in order to create that cohesive experience outside of putting it on a notepad, everybody's got to play together. Yep. And they got to play together nice. What role do you see MX playing to lead people into that sharing of data and information economy? What I've seen from past experiences in sort of creating partnership is you, you need to always start with the customer. And it sounds a very trite thing to say, start with the customer and work backward. Well, it, it's, it's so true, but often hard to do. And you need to think about use cases. We need to think about, you know, what are the use cases that are the most painful and stressful for customers? And can we start there and get a win and sort of move our way into mm -hmm. those other use cases? And I may have mentioned this um, in other forums to you, Ted, but around, you know, overdraft is one that I think is a, a perplexing use case that why does it exist today? Yeah. And I've even had overdrafts with a bank, which I'll name nameless, where I have four different accounts and one account has a lot of money in it. Mm -hmm. And the other account just happens to be where we choose to have our PayPal account linked to. And I'll be honest, why I link that one is because if it ever gets taken over, they can only take out so much money. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that maybe, maybe a very, it's a rational reason why I linked it there. Now I worked at PayPal, I should never fear that, but I'm just saying, but that's a very rational actor behavior. So what happens is I do a bunch of PayPal or any transactions with that bank account. It goes negative. I get dinged with an overdraft, but my other account is sitting with a lot of other money. That's why, siloed why, information. Why, yeah, it's siloed yeah. information. Well, that's a different department. Well, you didn't sign up for that banking program. I'm like, for God's sakes, I've been with you uh, for nearly 30 years and you didn't know I had literally nine, $9 in the, at least $9 in the other account that you could go forward with. I mean, that, that to me is, is, is literally borderline insane and borderline unethical that we live in a world that we're not availing that capability across our ecosystem. It just sort of, to me, is indicative of not caring about the customer and caring about our patch. MX has always been a really huge mission-driven company. And I'm curious to know what it was about the mission that resonated with you the most. 
many things about the mission resonate with me. As I thought about myself, and what is my personal mission? Like, I think everyone should have a personal mission. And, you know, my personal mission growing up in upstate New York, and I, it was re- literally help people and see the world. Those were my two missions. The help people, I, MX exudes that. MX exudes the, the whole mission around, you know, doing good. We've talked in other things mm-hmm. about one of our founders, Brandon DeWitt, and in his passing uh, last year to cancer. And he was famous for these sayings, right? And, you know, be bold, be kind, be good, and, you know, do all the good you can. And I think this is a company that just exudes in its heart doing good. And I, I couldn't be more happier to be at a place that, that that's what it ultimately believes. And to me, it, as I've mentioned to you before, it just feels a very natural place to be. And I got to see part of the world. I've got to come to Utah. And that's, that's a different part of the world than I've actually been before. And it's actually a very beautiful place. If, if you were to run into, and you probably do frequently, run into a fintech founder who's just starting their journey, what one piece of advice would you give them? I'm going to give you a little nuanced answer, which is find a use case. Find a use case that you feel you can revolutionize. And you can revolutionize it not at an incremental level. You know, not at a level that is, hey, I'm going to make it two basis points better on this, or I'm going to move two seconds of latency. What can you revolutionize? And if you look at any, in my mind, the successful companies are ones that take a experience, take a pain point, and they revolutionize that. And they make it a great end-to-end experience. That would be, one. I'll give you two. Because it's, the second would be, be prepared to disrupt yourself. The innovator's dilemma is a real thing that companies, and I think one of the challenges you asked about why is it so hard to move the industry, we have industry participants that are stuck in the old paradigm. And the paradigms change, and paradigms change in a hurry. And you could point to many industries within our last 20 years. I'm not going to point to them exactly as we go through this, but you could imagine, you could imagine if you were in the video cassette business, you're not, no longer in the video cassette business. If you're in the Yellow Pages business, you're no longer in the Yellow Pages business. I could go through many examples. Be prepared to disrupt yourself before others do because there are so many out there that do that and I'd rather disrupt myself than disrupt, be disrupted by others. Jim, this session has been phenomenal. I really appreciate thanks, you Dad. going to all the details. I just want to say thanks for the opportunity. I'm so excited to be part of MX and can't wait to, to work with all the ecosystem and really partner together on making this idea of data accessible, actionable, and really, really, and as I said, I think we're going to find this is really an important time in our history and frankly, the economic history of, of, of the world. And we're going to be hopefully be there to help people. Jim, thanks again. We're going to go ahead and put all the links to MX, their socials, all the different ways to get a hold of everybody in the show notes as well in the description. So you'll be able to get to it just one click away without having to go search for it. And again, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ted. Great. Really appreciate it. Thank you.